Amen. I'm going to take your Bibles and go to Psalm 51. That's where we're going to be tonight. If you have uh, our app, you can actually open up the app and go down to Sermon Notes and follow along right there. We've been in this Summer in the Psalms series, and I hope that it's been a blessing to you. We challenged you at the beginning of June uh, for all of us to read through uh, Psalms. That's 150 chapters Today is the last day of June. So I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you finished, because this isn't school. But in your mind, here's what I want you to do. Did I do that? Okay, did I not? Did I, did I follow through? Did I get sidetracked? Did I get sideways somewhere? But here's the blessing for you, because we challenged you to do it in June and guess what? July. So like if you stop short, you're like, hey, I got another month to catch up. So that's awesome. Or if you did get through it, maybe kind of go through it again here in July, because our hope and our prayer has been for you that you would not only just enjoy the Psalms this summer, but that somewhere along the way, you would just kind of fall in love with this book for the rest of your life. Because there's something about the way David and many of the other authors write uh, hymns and poems and songs to God. And some of it, maybe when you read through it or if you've been reading through it, you'll kind of notice that there's this, like there's some really high highs and there's some really low lows and it kind of goes back and forth and you almost feel like this is a roller coaster reading through this book. And, and uh, can I just remind you that that's how life is, isn't it? <laughs> Isn't that how your life is? That's how my life is. And so the reality is we're invited into in every aspect and season of life is to bring our heart to God and to see him more clearly and to enjoy him more fully. And I hope that you've been enjoying reading through the Psalms. And so we're gonna continue on with that. Elisa did a great job last week looking at Psalm 19. And today we're looking at Psalm 51, which is a, a deeper, kind of a maybe more solemn uh, psalm as you get into looking at it too. But I want you to think about a tension that we'll see in this psalm and that we'll see in the life of David as he's the author of this uh, much like, anyone remember Let's Make a Deal game show? Okay, it's kind of old school, uh, and if you're young, you don't remember, just, that's why they have Google, you can find it. Uh, but Let's Make a Deal was this kind of idea that a host would say to someone, they would give them something, maybe a $100 bill, and they would say, you can have this, or you could have like whatever is underneath the box. And so then instantly you're like, ooh, what's in the box? And so it's concealed, it's covered up, you can't see, it's secret, you don't know, and there's a part of you that kind of wants that to be, but here's what you know, like you know you have $100 in your hand and you have this tension that exists between what is known and what's revealed and what's concealed, what's covered up and what's unknown, what's secret. And the reality is, you can know one thing, the truth of the game is sometimes it would just be dog food underneath, and so you weren't promised a better gift and so you had this tension of what you were going to choose. And really, Psalm 51 is kind of like that in the sense of the tension that exists between living a life that's open and honest and authentic and real before God, before others, or a life that's kind of concealed a little bit in a cover-up, kind of secret in a way. And David's kind of writing to us to say, look, there is a best way to live, but there's a tension and you'll have to choose between them. And so Psalm 51 is all about this confession life, this idea of living in kind of an open life before God, before others, and, and learning the practice of confession. That's where David kind of takes us. And it starts with when David was approached by the prophet Nathan. 
and said, hey, you've been living a cover-up, kind of concealed secret, and I'm here to tell you that God knows. And so there's this moment that happens. Remember when David uh, was supposed to go out to war, but yet kind of went up on the roof, looked around, noticed a pretty lady, had her come over. They hung out for a while, played Scrabble. Uh, A baby got involved somehow. Uh, And then suddenly he had uh, her husband put on the front lines and killed, and he's concealing this whole thing, this soap opera that's playing out in real life. And the prophet Nathan shows up and says, hey, there's this rich guy that had a whole bunch of sheep, and yet he coveted his neighbor's one single sheep, and he stole it. And David's like, that guy is wrong. And Nathan says, you are that guy. And in an instant, David realizes this whole cover-up thing, that wasn't the best. And he's convicted. And in that moment, he kind of goes on this journey. He writes Psalm 51. And so Psalm 51, we remember as we studied through Psalms, Psalms is the most quoted book in the New Testament from the Old Testament. There's so much richness about here. There's, this is one of the penitential psalms, one of the confessional psalms that the early church recognized. They recognized Psalm 6, 32, 38, 51, 102, 130, and 145. But here in Psalm 51, David has been approached, and here's his words. Here's what he utters. The very first couple verses kind of set a tone for this whole psalm, and here's what he says. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, not according to my behavior, not according to my conduct, not according to if, how many times I get it right versus how many times I get it wrong, not according to my merit, God, but according to you, according to your character. Have mercy on me, O oh God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, would you look favorably upon me? Not based on my character, but because of your character, God. Would you look on me? Would you blot out my transgressions? Would you wash away my iniquity? Would you cleanse me from my sin? Psalm 51 develops the Old Testament's most most complete statement of a theology of sin as we look at this. And I know for some that's kind of like, well, why are we talking about this? Because the reality is we're all here. We all have a tension that we live in of, am I going to live a life that's open and honest and authentic before God and before others, or am I going to live with a cover-up, or am I going to be somewhere in the middle of that, because this is life, this is reality, and David is in this moment where he is deciding, I've got to live a different way. And so he's teaching us, he's calling to us to say, look, this is about not living a covered up kind of life, but living a confessional kind of life, a life that's open and honest and authentic before people. He uses words here, kind of Hebrew words, just to point out, uh, of three primary words for the word sin in Hebrew that we don't see in the English language, but chata is this idea of missing the mark. It's an archery term. Anyone ever shot a bow and arrow before? An archery term means I'm shooting at a target, and when I miss the target, I've missed chata. I've missed the mark of where I'm at, and this speaks to the idea of our sinful actions, the way that we choose to do something different than maybe what is God's best and what he desires. We've missed the mark. And David's saying, would you blot out my transgressions? I've missed the mark, God. I missed it, I blew it. I've not hit perfection like you have called for. Pesha, this idea of rebellion or trespasses or to step over the line. How many of you have ever parents and toddlers? You know when you give the ultimatum, hey, don't do this, and then they do this. 
right? In that moment, that's original sin. No one taught them that, okay? That is just part of this nature to say, I'm gonna push back. I'm gonna have this, speaks to this idea of sinful attitudes that we have in our heart. We mask it a little bit different the older we get, but it's still there. It still has this call to us. Avon, this idea to be bent and twisted, have this iniquity. You think of House of Mirrors, if you've ever been to a carnival, that you go in and the mirror kind of makes you misshaped in whatever shape that may be, but it's not normal. That's what he's saying is sin has marked my life. It's because of my sinful nature of who I am. It's just in my brokenness of humanity that has fallen from sin and affected the world and it's affected me and it's warped. And yes, I am the imago Dei and made in the image of God, but I'm a warped image of that because of the effect of sin upon me. They're left to myself. God, I, I, I don't naturally go toward your best or what you desire or what you call us to. And so David has this cry for mercy. He has this cry to say, God, release me from the presence and the power of sin. This willingness to call upon God to the depths of who his character is and that we call out to his great compassion, to his unfailing love, this covenant kind of love that we can lean into and hold to that God bears in this image as he's being described as a masculine and feminine nature of love, this fullness and completeness of God's love depicted in this passage. And we're to live in the fullness and the understanding of who God is through Christ now. As we have a relationship with him, if that's you, if you put your faith in Jesus, we now live under the fullness of God's love and grace expressed through Christ that we can stand before the Father, not because of our merit, but because of what Jesus did. And we can come before him and now we are invited in that we can live a life of confession. We don't have to hide. We don't have to cover up because we can come before and live in the fullness of God's love because of faith in Christ. It's through confession that we can then continue to build this relationship and foster this to grow in healthy and authentic ways. 1 John 4 says this, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, that he came on a rescue mission to make things right, and that's what David's leaning into. God, you're the one that has to make things right. There isn't enough penance, there isn't enough things that I can do to make this right. You've got to go to work because of your character, because of who you are, to blot this out, to wash this out, and to cleanse me, to make me new. He goes on, he, he continues on, he says, I know my transgressions and my sin is always before you. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I've done what's evil in your sight and you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. God, my, my sin is like always before you because you are holy and you are perfect and you are set apart and I am far from that. And so you are right when you judge and when you look at me. Surely I was sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And so scholars kind of look at this idea of a couple different points here, this idea that sin is before God, that as a perfect and holy heavenly father, that sin is what separates us from relationship with him. And it isn't about us trying to do enough good things to, to weigh out some kind of cosmic spiritual scale. It's the fact that we are, we are unable 
to even out some kind of scale. The scale's way too big. And even one brokenness or one piece of sin keeps us from perfection and having a relationship with the perfect holy God. And David is saying, look, my sin is against you, God. Now, it's interesting, because you could look at this in one way and say, well, David's just confessing to God and he's not really dealing with the ramifications or the ripple effect of his choices and the consequences that have played out for Bathsheba and for Uriah and for their family and for all of that. And, and what you have to understand is David saying, no, no, See, Jesus said later on, listen, if you've got and you're coming before God and you're bringing something to the altar and you recognize that you've got something between you and someone else, you're gonna leave your gift at the altar and you're gonna go make it right. This idea of reconciliation and restoration relationally is meant to happen. So it's not that David is saying, I don't have to do that, but what he's saying is, God, it's against you and you alone have I sinned. It's you foremost because you're the one that sets the standard. And I deviated from that that you set and established and said, this is what's best for you, David, and I, I missed the mark of that. And I had my own attitudes and my own warped nature, and I went a different way. And so, God, it's against you and you alone because you're the standard setter that I've sinned, that I've wronged, that I've deviated away from your best and what you dream and desire for me. And so I've got I've to come before you for that. Now, I've got to go deal with this other stuff, too, relationally, and we all have to work on that. But it starts, confession starts with saying, God, I'm in the wrong. And you laid out what's best, and I went a different direction. And I chose differently. And that I've got to work on this reconciliation. That surely I was uh, sinful from the moment of birth. This this idea of this original sin that none of us come in to the world, a clean slate in essence, that since the fall of humanity, we all come in warped in this way. That's why we needed the Savior. That's why it's not a, a philosophy or a development plan that you go on. It's the fact that a Savior came searching for me and for you that we could have relationship and be restored into relationship with God. That's why Jesus had to come. Paul said it like this. There is no difference between Jew or Gentile, Romans 3, for all have sinned. Not like some have sinned or a few have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all missed the mark. That's that language there again. And we're all justified freely by the grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus, period. It's not through our merit or effort. It's about what he did. And you go through this prayer and David's kind of laying out, God, I was wrong. And then he gets to this beautiful phrase, a simple phrase in verse 10 through 12. He says this, create in me a pure heart, God. Moving beyond this cry for cleansing, David now says, look, I want a recreation within my own spirit, within my own soul. I I need you to recreate within me. Create in me a pure heart, oh God. I want to be ultimately fulfilled in Christ. That's what we know. But, Paul, but uh, David's reaching out and saying, I want to be, have a new heart made for me. It's this Hebrew word, bara, taken from Genesis 1.1. God created. Out of nothing came everything. And so it's this idea that's a work beyond what we could make. It's a divine kind of creation. God, would you do a divine work within my life? Would you create in me a clean heart? Renew a steadfast spirit within me that I would pursue you and choose what you say is best and what you desire most 
versus deviating and choosing my own actions. That we're born in this sin, but we want to be reborn into being pure and made right with him. This is what Jesus is referring to as he's having a conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter three. You gotta be reborn, Nicodemus. How do you do that? Well, that's an act of God. That's not something you can create or something you can stir up. That's about trust and about watching what Jesus can do. It's not about what you do, it's about what he's done. And so that's why we remember the cross and that's why we remember the hope that we have. This psalm is such a beautiful expression of the heart of someone who's really trying to figure out and practice this idea of confession. How do we do this? How do we live a life that's open and real and authentic and honest versus a cover-up, concealed, secretive. We will always live in this tension, friends. You will always have a choice between those. It's a call that we have to, to take on. There will always be a tension that exists between that, and it's a choice that's always laid out before us that we must choose which way we're gonna go, which one we're gonna lean toward, which one we're gonna take. As you read through Psalm 51, it's this practice of confession. And what you need to understand is sin, when we think of sin, I want you to think of it beyond this idea of just breaking some arbitrary rule. Sin is a relational violation. Sin is this idea of saying, God, I know you've desired and created and established what's right, and I'm choosing to do it my own way. I'm choosing to trust in myself and not you. And so when we sin, when we break covenant, when we, when we do things against God's best and what he has designed and desired, it's this idea of saying, God, I know better. And so sin isn't just breaking some arbitrary rule, it's really kind of going into this violation, this fracturing of relationship. You know this to be true in your own relationships. When you choose what's best for you and it ends up hurting someone else, it's not just breaking an arbitrary rule because the relationship gets affected and it gets impacted and trust has to be rebuilt and reestablished and forgiveness has to be given and sought. And that's how you go about reconciliation and restoring relationships. And so some simple takeaways, I think, from Psalm 51 and this whole practice of confession that we see throughout the scriptures, and maybe one is this, confession cleans the soul, whereas cover-up clouds the soul and clogs up our relationship with God and our relationship with others. When we choose to live the cover-up, and to live with a secrecy and to try to keep it concealed. The only thing that gets affected is the relationship between us and God and us and others. But when we live with an open, honest heart of confession, hey, look, I gotta own up to my stuff. I did that. My, my actions, I did that. My attitude was this way, and I've gotta own that. And I need forgiveness for that. I just wanna confess that I wanna be honest and open and authentic and real with you or with me and God, and then I learn to keep short accounts with him, that's where you begin to, to live in freedom. See, real spiritual maturity does not mean I confess less, it actually means I repent more. It actually gets to this point where I do it more quickly. I'm learning to keep short accounts with God that when I, I know it, the Holy Spirit's able to convict in that moment, I'm able to realize, yes, my attitude's off kilter there, God. I'm sorry for that. That's not your best, and I want to confess that. 
Would you help shape my heart? Would you create in me a new heart, God, that sees people or sees a situation or reacts differently than what I just did? Because that's an attitude that's not your best. That's an action I lived out that's not your best. That's not what you desire from me. You desire better and more. And this practicing a confession is to be able to restore reconciliation, a restoration between a relationship between you and God and you and others. You know this to be true. You play it out in your relationships, or you don't, and you end up suffering from it. See, confession sets our hearts and minds in the right kind of posture that I can live an authentic life between me and God and me and others. And I can own my stuff, and the other people I interact with, well, they can own their stuff. And when it's healthy, we're both owning that. And relationships gets restored and gets stronger. But when one tries to live in cover-up and the other one's trying to live confession, there's, there's dissonance in that. And so the scriptures continually call to us, hey, make confession a practice. And as you grow in maturity in Christ, you don't do it less, you actually do it more, and you do it more quickly because your Holy, the Holy Spirit's alerting you to how off of alignment you are from what's God's best. And so it's not this idea of, of shame, but it's this idea of God, I want our relationship to be fully functioning, like a Lamborghini, running fast, which means I gotta get things out of the way and unclog this relationship, that it's not deviated, that it doesn't get affected or clogged up or, or filtered out in a way that harms our relationship. See, cover up is the way of the enemy. Cover-up is the, the whispers of the enemy. No, no, no. No one needs to know. Just keep it quiet. Just conceal that. And the problem with that is it may work for a little bit. But we all know the reality of how long that can actually go, right? And eventually it's going to come out. And eventually it's going to surface. And you get harmed even more because you haven't lived an open and authentic life. You've lived this idea of the cover-up. And the cover-up is the enemy trying to say, look, I want you to live in a fractured, damaged, and broken relationship with you and God and you and others. And so you need to conceal it. See, if the enemy can keep you distracted, he will detour your life into our damage and not toward fostering health in your relationship. Your spiritual enemy does not need to destroy you if he can distract you. And so fighting for focus and to not live a detoured life and to say, God, I want to be open and honest and, 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 and real with you that I can learn and that you can reshape because I've asked you to create in me a new heart, which means my heart has got to go through some changes because I'm not you, you're you. And I'm nowhere near that, but I want to be more like you. And so confession is this prayer to say, God, help me be more like you, to stay focused on that pursuit. Maybe a second one is this, confession must be specific to be authentic. You know this to be true in your own relationships. You hurt someone, you harm someone, you, your attitude, your actions, or something plays out, and then they come back to you, or you get wounded, you get hurt from it, and someone comes back and says, hey, I'm sorry. For what? No, I'm just sorry. Well, that's generic. It doesn't mean anything when it's generic, does it? that when sin violates relationship, us with God or us with others, it's gotta be specific in our confession. Hey, I'm sorry for, 
when I said that, I took something out on you that I shouldn't have. And maybe I'm struggling over here with this, but it should have never crossed over into harming you or being against you. And I'm sorry for that. And so we own our stuff, specifically, we hold that. Uh, the Art of Public Gravel, Susan Bauer writes this, an apology is an expression of regret, I'm sorry. A confession is an admission of fault. I'm sorry because I did wrong. We've watched people make confessions, and you can tell when they're authentic, and you can tell when they're not, when they're just generic. I regret doing that versus I'm really sorry I did this because I saw that it hurt you. And so confession is this idea of agreeing with God when he convicts us to restore us. It's being quick to keep short accounts with God. It's when the Holy Spirit says, hey, 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 why, why are you thinking that? Why are you letting your attitude go there? And in that moment, you're able to say, man, yeah, you're right. That, that's not how you would look at the situation, God. So would you help me? I confess that. I want to own my stuff in this. Uh, thirdly, an immature Christian has a graduate degree in other sins and a kindergarten diploma in their own. As you mature in your faith, you will do more soul searching than finger pointing. Immature Christians do a lot of finger pointing and calling out the sin of others to the full neglect of the stuff they've got to own. And so all throughout the scripture, we see this idea that as we grow in grace, it means I'm becoming more and more bothered by my own things and the work God wants to do in me than I am on yours. You never outgrow the practice of confession. You will never reach a point when you don't need to do it. This is a practice David is saying, look, all throughout the scriptures, stop, don't get caught up in stopping and inspecting yourself and just become preoccupied with inspecting others. There is a call here that says, look, when we get to there, we've gone sideways. And I think the church maybe needs this more than ever. We gotta own our own stuff. Now, does that mean we can't call out things on others? No, I'm not saying that. But if all I'm ever doing is calling out the sin of others, the wrongdoings of others, and I'm never really introspecting or soul-searching myself, then I'm immature in my faith. Because the scriptures are continually calling, hey, I've got to own my stuff to get right with God and right with others. And that's the call. The church needs to do more of this. Timothy Keller writes this, the biblical teaching on sin shows us the complete pervasiveness of sin and the ultimate impossibility of dividing the world neatly into sinful people and good people. It eliminates our attitude of superiority toward others and our practices of shunning or excluding others whom we differ. This is the idea that we're all affected by sin. There isn't one over here that's more than another. It's different, yes. But it's this call to say, look, we've all been affected by this. That's why we needed a Savior to come. That's why we all need Jesus. That's why this Jesus news is good news for all people and for anyone and everyone who will look toward him. Because we all need him. 
That's the point of the scriptures over and over. So this practice of confession is about getting right with God, staying right with God, keeping short accounts with him and with others. I love how Max Lucado describes this. He says this, confession does for the soul what preparing the land does for the field. Before the farmer sows out the seeds, he works the acreage, removing the rocks, pulling up the stumps. He knows that the seed grows better in the land that's prepared. Confession is the act of inviting God to walk the acreage of our own hearts. God, remember Psalm 139 Matt looked at a few, a few weeks ago? Search me, O God. Know me. If there's any offensive way in me, reveal it to me. That's this practice of confession. We don't do it less as we mature. We actually do it more because we're inviting God to walk the acreage of our own heart. God, I want to have a heart that's recreated by you, that reflects you more and more. And so as we close, here's what I want to do. I want to give you a reminder and an invitation because we've set up some time here at the end of the service that I want you to take advantage of and to lean into. Uh, The first reminder is this. Jesus said this. One of the last phrases he said from the cross, it is finished, period. The period's important because it's not a comma, it's not a semicolon, it's not a dash, it is finished. Tetelestai, one Greek word, tetelestai, it is finished, which literally means paid in full in the first century terms. In fact, in first century terms, you were given a receipt when you paid something off and it would be stamped with tetelestai. It is finished, paid in full. You owe nothing else. And so today, after you take communion, at each communion table is a receipt for you to remind you that Tetelestai, that as a person of faith who has trusted Jesus, confessed him as your Lord and Savior, you have been paid in full. The debts that you owed, the sin that you and I create, Jesus took care of it. And so that's why we can live an open, confessional kind of life is because we're not trying to get something from God. We're trying to live in what we've been given by God. We're trying to live this idea of an open, authentic life with God where my relationship with him is strong, my relationship with others is strong because I'm living authentically. I'm not living a covered up, secretive, concealed kind of life. That's the reminder. Apostle Paul writes this, 1 John, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us, but if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, forgives us of our sins, purifies us from all unrighteousness. It's because of Jesus that sin no longer defines us. His love does. That's the reminder. It's paid in full. It's finished. So I can live an open, honest life. And so here's the invitation. For, For some of you, it may be that it is a moment to confess your actual need for Jesus. That maybe you've been circling around the Christian faith and investigating Jesus for who he is, but you've never really come to a point where you gotta say yes to Jesus. And so maybe tonight is the night where you confess and say, Jesus, I need you. I need you in my life. I need you to forgive my sins and to come into my life, to be the leader of my life moving forward. And for some of you, it's that. For the rest of us, maybe it's a moment of of real soul searching of saying I wanna confess and live a life that's authentic and real and so there's some stuff in me that I wanna own. I wanna own my own stuff, God. And so I want to keep short accounts with you and I wanna make this practice of confession real. 
So confession is a very much an individualistic thing. And so here's what I'm going to invite you to do. That you can sit in your seat and do this. We've kind of created the space down front where you can come and kneel and you can kind of, you and God have a conversation of just owning your stuff and bringing that before God. You can sit on the front row and do that. But through the next three songs here in a moment, we're gonna create some space for you to do that. So we're gonna create space in these three songs anywhere in the next 10 to 12 minutes. We're gonna invite you to kind of, you and God have a, a confession conversation of just owning your stuff before God and trying to work out and keep a clean, flowing relationship with him. And so maybe you wanna own that. Confession also has a corporate side of this where we as the royal priesthood, those who have followed and said yes to Jesus, that we can confess on behalf of a group of people, on behalf of a city, on behalf of a nation, where we can say, God, would you forgive us of this? You hold this against, we've deviated away from your best, and God, we need your healing, and we need your hope, we need your help. And so maybe as a part of that, you've had a good, uh, clean relationship with God right now, but maybe as part of that royal priesthood, you're gonna ask God on behalf of a people group or behalf of a city, behalf of a nation, and bring that confession. And so somewhere in these next three songs, as the band begins to make their way back up, we're inviting you to take and practice this idea of confession. When you're ready and you feel like you've done that, then we're obviously opening up a space for communion. We have communion tables in the back and down here we have gluten-free over here. And just kind of creating space for you to remember it's Jesus' life and death and resurrection that makes a way for us to have right relationship with God. That it's his way, that he and his sacrifice made a way for us and through the giving of his body, the shedding of his blood, that we can be forgiven of our sin. We can be made right and have life with God through relationship with him. And as you go to the communion table, to pick up that receipt, to take it home, stick it on your mirror, put it in your car, as a reminder to tell us die. Jesus took care of my stuff. Thank you. And not just a thank you, but now an invitation to say, I, I don't have to conceal I don't have to try to hide. I don't have to cover up. I can be authentic and honest and real with God, and I want his Holy Spirit to be in a constant relationship with me and convicting me when I'm out of alignment and allowing me to become more and more like him this year than last year and next year than this year. That's what this life with Jesus is about. So we just invite you, and I'll pray for us, and anywhere in these next 12 minutes, we're inviting you to take a moment in your seat up here in the front row, just you and God have a conversation. So Father, that's our prayer. We want to be a people that learn to keep short accounts with you. Psalm 51 is one of those classic confessional kind of psalms where David owns up, and that's a big mistake. Whether it's big or whether it's little, you call us to be a people who own our stuff. That we're real and authentic and honest with you. That we choose the path of confession over the path of covering up, concealing. So in these next few moments as we sing, would you help us to worship you in song? Would you worship you in prayer, through communion, through remembrance of the grace that you give us, 
the help you want to pour into our lives. Would you search us, reveal to us, call us closer to you? 